identification and clinical management. So first of all, what is bioterrorism? Before we talk about it, we need to know what it is. Well, it's the use of biologic agents to kill or sicken people, animal, or plants, but you have to have an intent that goes along with it. It can't just be sort of accidental. So you have to be intending to intimidate or coerce a government or a civilian population for some kind of political or social objectives. So there's something that goes with it as well as the effect of it. And biological weapons can be relatively inexpensive. However, they might be difficult to weaponize. We'll talk about what that means to weaponize a biological weapon. Many of them are easy to obtain. It induces fear. You know, people don't know what is this thing, bioterrorism. It can make the population fearful. It can easily overwhelm medical and public health systems. And there can be dissemination over a large geographic area, as you will see. So what do we mean to weaponize a biological agent? Usually what it means is the terrorist would take this agent, put it into a form where it can be aerosolized over a huge population. And the World Health Organization has done some modeling on this. And what they've looked at is, for example, just 50 kilograms, which is not very much, of anthrax or tularemia. If you made it into this aerosolized form and you dispersed it over a population of about 5 million, so something like Orange County, a quarter million people would contract the disease. And from anthrax, you'd have 100,000 deaths or 19,000 deaths from tularemia. So this can have a huge, huge effect on medical and public health systems just with a very small amount of agent that's aerosolized and released over a civilian population. But the terrorist goal actually might not be to kill people. They want to disrupt society. They want to disrupt freeway of, of life. So they want to induce fear and disrupt society. Think about the anthrax letter attacks after September 11th. Everybody's familiar with that, where there were actually only 22 direct casualties, not 100,000 like we just talked about. That was still considered bioterrorism. We had people actually microwaving their mail and doing all kinds of crazy things, afraid to go out. <laughs> Doesn't work, by the way. <laughs> Okay, so an attack with bioterrorism might be covert or overt. What do I mean by that? Overt would be you know it happens, like it's the anthrax letters. You see that white powder. Or a terrorist announces, I just released this agent over the population. But more likely, it's going to be what we call covert. We don't know it happens. So we've released this over the population. You can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. You don't know it happened. How do we detect it? We'll talk about that in a little while. But basically, there's going to be an incubation period, and it'll be some period of time before we get patients coming in with influenza-like illness to hospitals and clinics and doctor's offices. Detection can be more difficult than for chemical, radiological, or what we call conventional, which is explosion type of terrorism, because chemical, you're going to have patients with symptoms right away, right? Radiologic, we can use radiation detectors. It's fairly simple to detect if we suspect it. And conventional, you'll see an explosion. You'll know that it happened. So biological can be more difficult to detect. It might take days. And you might not initially know that it's terrorism. How many of you think that the anthrax letter attacks in the fall of 2011 were the first bioterrorism attack on the US? You're shaking your head no, because I have one up here. <laughs> Actually, in 1984, there was a religious cult group that sprayed salmonella in the salad bars in Oregon. And they were trying to sway a political election. So they were trying to have this effect on society. They were trying to get their candidate to win the election. And people actually got sick from the salmonella in the salad bars. It didn't work in terms of giving the terrorists the outcome they wanted. But what happened was it was many, many years before the US government realized it was a terrorist attack. They thought it was just a natural outbreak of salmonella in the salad bars. So in this case, it was many years. Another example, we remember the 2009 H1N1 effect. Initially, we did not know that that pandemic was naturally occurring. There was some question about whether it was intentional. So it can be very difficult to tell. So here's an example of what you should not do. It's not a cute puppy, I know, but it's kind of close <laughs> if you're trying not to contract swine flu. 
All right, so when do we suspect bioterrorism? We said it might be difficult to detect. Well, it could be a single suspected case of an uncommon disease. Can anyone think of an uncommon disease? Something? Smallpox. smallpox. Very good. So we shouldn't see smallpox. It's supposed to be eradicated worldwide. So by definition, actually, if we actually saw a case of smallpox, that would be terrorism. Clusters of similar disease in the same time frame in different locales. So what happens if we aerosolize an agent and release it over a population? Maybe um, the Super Bowl. And then people go back to their homes in different geographic locations and several days later start coming down with influenza-like illness and we do an epidemiologic investigation and we realize they all have the same disease in the same time frame, but they were in the same place and now are in different locations. So epidemiologic investigation. Then we can also have unusual clinical, geographical, or seasonal presentation. We all know we see a bunch of patients with flu-like symptoms during flu season. What if all of a sudden you've got 15 patients in the waiting room with flu-like illness, but it's not flu season? You have to suspect something's going on. It's something unusual. What if we see Ebola virus at UC Irvine? That would make you a little suspicious. If you saw it in Africa, where it is occurring, that might not be an issue. But if you saw it in an unusual place or an unusual season, that would make you suspicious. Also, increased deaths in the animal population. And when we work on bioterrorism detection, we work with the veterinary community as well as other personnel such as public health. Okay, so from 1999 to 2004, I worked with the U.S. federal government as the national director of the Emergency Management Office, which is like disaster preparedness for the Federal Department of Veterans Affairs. And our operations center was in West Virginia. So I commonly had to drive from Washington, D.C. to our operations center. And on the way, I saw a bunch of cows on the road. And remember I said if we see illness in the animal population, this might indicate that we have bioterrorism. So usually I would talk to my staff on the phone, get some things organized, and I would always tell them, it's really good today. The cows are standing upright. <laughs> okay, so this is good. This is bad. <laughs> so if you saw a bunch of cows on their side, cows get anthrax, right? So it could be that there was an aerosolized release of anthrax. It could indicate a bioterrorism attack. Is there anything else in the differential of, of cows falling on their sides? Cow tipping. Cow tipping. You guys are so smart. <laughs> in the Midwest, apparently, there's a sport where you go out and you push the cows over for fun. I, I don't, it never made sense to me. But <laughs> or what? Or at UC Davis? Okay. <laughs> so this is the first audience that knew cow tipping. Very good. In the differential. So animal population can be your first clue. Now, our U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC in the U.S., has classified bioterrorism agents into categories A, B, and C. Category C agents are ones that could be engineered for future mass dissemination. They are available, easy to produce and disseminate. They could cause high morbidity and mortality. Essentially, the ones they're calling the Category C agents are what we call the emerging pathogens, new diseases, emerging pathogens. And what's interesting is there's been more than 30 over the past 25 years. So an example would be hantavirus. That wasn't around a long time ago, uh, but it is now, so it's an emerging pathogen. So terrorists could get a hold of one of these and potentially engineer it and disseminate it. Those are Category C agents. Then the next category, Category B agents, these are considered moderately easy to disseminate and have moderate morbidity but lower mortality. And here's an example of some of the ones that are classified by our CDC as Category B agents. They include things like brucellosis, some of the food safety threats like the E. coli 0157, uh, Q fever, psittacosis, some of the viral encephalitides, that type of thing. So those are all considered category B. And the ones that we'll talk about today are the ones that are most concerning. Those are called the category A agents. And these are supposed to be easy to disseminate from person to person, uh, possibly transmitted from person to person, possibly contagious, high mortality, major public health impact, 
could cause a lot of social disruption. And one thing that is a criteria to be a Category A agent is we need to know from intelligence community that in the past it was used as a biological weapon. So that's a criteria for Category A agents. And these are essentially these six agents, and we'll go through these. Anthrax, smallpox, plague, tularemia, viral hemorrhagic fevers, we'll use the example of Ebola, and then botulism. So these six agents are the ones that are considered the highest risk for use in bioterrorism. <coughs> Another way to group these is you can look at them in terms of being bacteria, viruses, or toxins, with anthrax, plague, and tularemia being the bacteria, smallpox and the viral hemorrhagic fevers as the viruses, and botulism as the toxin. <coughs> so here's anthrax. Remember back after 9-11, we had these letters, and here's a quote from the then uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services, Secretary Thompson, saying, it's an isolated case. There is no terrorism. And in fact, in my position at that time, I got a phone call from my counterpart at HHS saying, we think this was naturally occurring. This guy, patient Bob Stevens, works on a farm. He was out in the farm. He probably just got anthrax. It's no big deal. But we wanted to alert you because we're all on high alert right now after 9-11. Well, of course, they were wrong. <laughs> this was, in fact, Terrorism, but the point is we did not know immediately that it was terrorism. And what is this a picture of right here? It's a brain at autopsy. I'll give you a clue. Anybody know? Cancer? Hemorrhagic meningitis. Why am I showing a picture of hemorrhagic meningitis with anthrax? About 50% of them get hemorrhagic meningitis. And in fact, what happened with this first patient, when I got that phone call, I was told the patient has anthrax in the CSF. They had done an LP. This guy was altered. And they found it in the CSF. And then they went back and looked again at the x-ray and figured out it was, in fact, inhalational anthrax. But that was how it was first detected. Okay, so anthrax is a gram-positive spore-forming bacillus. And remember, one of the criteria, it had to have been used as a bioweapon. We know it was used as a bioweapon in old uh, Russia in 1979, a place called Sverdlovsk. We know this because there was an accidental release from this place called Biopreparat, which was actually a bioweapons factory, even though they didn't initially admit that. And we had six, 79 human cases, 68 deaths, some infected with multiple strains. And all of these were actually downwind from the plant. Interestingly, and we're not sure exactly why, no children were infected, maybe because they were inside in schools. We're not really sure. And the reason we know all this is there was a very famous person who was deputy director of Biopreparat. I've actually spoken with him at conferences who defected and gave a lot of information to the US government about exactly what was going on there. And investigations were done, and it was pretty clear that there was this aerosolized release, and then a bunch of people contracted anthrax. So in fact, they were developing biological warfare agents at that time. So anthrax can come into several different forms. It can be the inhalational kind. It can be the cutaneous or skin form, and also gastrointestinal. You could ingest it, and you could get intestinal anthrax. It is something that we see. It infects animals worldwide. Remember the patient Bob Stevens? Initially, we thought maybe he just got it from the farm. There has been human cases reported in the United States, and you can see the list of some of them there. And of course, we had this event in 2001 with 22 cases, five of the 11 that were inhalational, the pulmonary form, ended up dying. So the inhalational form, the incubation period is usually less than a week, but can be up to two months. This is really important to know. There's no person-to-person -person transmission. So if I have somebody with the pulmonary form of anthrax and I cough on you, you're not going to get it. It's not going to be transmitted from person to person. As with most of these diseases, you're going to get these nonspecific flu-like symptoms. It's very difficult to 
detect whether this is a biological agent or just the flu. Uh, one thing supposedly you see that may be a little different is profound diaphoresis in the inhalational anthrax. Again, we mentioned, remember with the brain, 50% developing the hemorrhagic meningitis. Chest x-ray is often abnormal, and we see mediastinal widening. It's more of a mediastinitis than a pneumonia. One thing we saw was also pleural effusions. So here's an actual patient, and if you do get to a respiratory failure, you can expect about a 90% mortality. Here's a picture of the x-ray at 3 a.m. You can see by 5.30, just two and a half hours later, it's progressed. The mediastinum is quite wide. By about 9 o'clock, here you see the tip of the ET tube, so this person's already in respiratory failure. And by 11 a.m., just eight hours later, Look how terrible that x-ray looks. So rapidly progressive. See something like this in the right setting, you're going to think of inhalational anthrax. Cutaneous, the skin form. The word comes from the Greek word for coal, and we'll see some pictures if it has kind of a black eschar. It's got a one to five day incubation period, but it can be longer. It's painless, it's puritic, and it goes through this progression, papule, vesicle a couple days later, ruptures, and leaves that necrotic ulcer with the surrounding edema. The ulcer base turns black in two to three weeks, the eschar separates, and it leaves the scar. These patients present with fever, malaise, headache. I'll show you a picture of something called malignant edema, which they sometimes get around the face and limbs. You can get septicemia, but if you treat this, mortality is low, less than 1%, so it's important to detect it and treat it, because if you don't treat it, about 20% of them can die. So here's some pictures. If you didn't suspect this, you wouldn't think about anthrax. I've worked with um, some, some of the students from the past couple shifts where we kept looking at all these different rashes, trying to figure out what it was. <laughs> None of them looked like anthrax, but it can be difficult. <coughs> Here you see the ulcer and the vesicular ring then turning into this black eschar, remember the Greek word from coal, with the redness remaining. Now, here's a picture of anthrax on your left, cutaneous form, but what do we see on the right? The infamous spider bite that we hardly ever see, but it does re exist, recurrent cutaneous loxosalism, and what we see every single day in the emergency department, MRSA. It looks pretty similar, doesn't it? So you have to consider the setting. If somebody, if it was the fall of 2011 and the person is a postal worker in Washington, D.C. and comes in with this lesion, you're going to think more anthrax. If it's today in our emergency department, sure, you can think about anthrax, but it's probably going to be MRSA. So unless you suspect it and you're in the right setting, you're probably going to <coughs> miss it. And here's a picture of that malignant edema that I mentioned. Again, um, up around the eye here, you can see it in particular. Here's that black S-car. Okay, how do we treat anthrax? Yes. You just crank the lesion and get a rapid uh, some kind of something. The question is, can you scrape the re lesion and get some rapid test? Not that I am aware of. There's no... Uh, well, yeah, you can. Remember, you could, you could do a gram stain and it would be consistent with anthrax, but it wouldn't be definitive for anthrax. And would that convert it to an inhalational anthrax when you scrape off the dust? No, you can't. The, the only way you can get inhalational anthrax is the spore. You can inhale the spore. The bacterium cannot be inhaled. They're not infectious. So if you have the bacterial infection on your skin and you scratch yourself and take some of that bacteria from one person and put it on your wound, you will get an infection. <laughs> But you cannot inhale the bacteria. The bacteria itself is actually, from an inhalational perspective, not infectious. The only part that is inf infectious from an inhaled perspective is the spore. And the bacteria don't produce more spores? The bacteria do produce spores, but under, only under certain circumstances. If they are in a, in a vegetative state, so they're multiplying, they do not make spores. So if they're infecting you, they don't make spores. So the spores you get, you have to inhale. And once you get that infection, they don't make new spores that you can then cough out. That does not happen. So unlike some of the others we'll talk about in a minute, this is not with, you know, the exception that Dr. Schultz just meant, 
mention of rubbing it into your skin going to be contagious from one person to another. So that's important to know. So the treatments, pretty much um, Cipro and Doxy were the big treatments. There were some real political issues that went along with that. We started off by giving um, Cipro, can also be used as prophylaxis as well as treatment, to the FBI agents and to the people in the Congress, the congressional staffers that were exposed. And what happened was we found out they got very, very sick from the Cipro. They, all the FBI agents had diarrhea. I mean, they just weren't tolerating <laughs> it. They weren't taking it. And so, aha, Doxy works just as well. Fewer side effects. Let's move to Doxy. By the time the postal workers were coming in for prophylaxis, we were giving them Doxy. Well, what do you know about the cost of Cipro versus Doxy? Doxy is much cheaper, right? Doxy is a cheap antibiotic. Cipro is the expensive antibiotic. And in Washington, D.C., a lot of the congressional staffers were young white people, and a lot of the postal workers were African American. So there was whole this big thing about racism. Why are you giving African Americans the cheap antibiotic? And there was a medical reason, but this gets into sort of your risk communications and, and how this was went out. But that turned out to be a big issue. Okay. So moving on to the next one, which is going to be different in terms of how contagious it is. Plague. Remember, plague was another one of those Category A agents. And this is a gram-negative uh, anaerobic intracellular bacillus. They describe it as sort of a safety pin um, appearance if you look under the microscope. And uh, what's this little guy right here? It's not a cute puppy, <laughs> but it's something a cute puppy could have. It's a flea. <laughs> okay, so what happens is uh, this can be transmitted by these fleas, and all this stuff is in the flea's stomach, and they bite you, and they kind of regurgitate it into you, more than you wanted to know. But that's the, the flea for plague. So again, we do know this was used as a bioweapon. That's one of the criteria for the Category A agents. In World War II, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of it, but there was a secret biological warfare aid um, research unit in Manchuria called Unit 731. Maybe Pam knows about this from oh Japanese history. They don't <laughs> teach that stuff. Yeah, they don't teach that stuff. It did not officially exist. No, no. It's a communist plot. Right. So um, we know that plague can be, uh, was something that was produced there at this place that doesn't actually exist. And acquired from infected flea, animal, or human. This is something that you can see, just like anthrax, uh, without it being terrorism. We see uh, maybe nine or so cases a year in the western United States between April and November. So remember I said suspected if it's in the wrong place or the wrong season. This is another thing. I got another one of those phone calls in the fall of 2011 saying, we have two cases of plague in New York City. And the U.S. government was pretty nervous about this. You know, is there some biological terrorism with plague? It turned out after investigation that these two people had, tra had traveled from the western states and it was something they just got through nature and it was not, in fact, bioterrorism, but there were a lot of phone calls and meetings before that was known. Okay, so bubonic, the skin form, bubonic for the buboes that you're going to get. These patients are pretty sick. They have sudden fever and chills, headache, nausea, vomiting hours later. And these buboes pop up in one to eight days, usually after the symptom onset. So this is one time when it's good that we have longer waiting times in the emergency department so we can see those buboes popping up. And uh, really tender and painful. Femoral is the most common location, but you can see them many different places. If you miss this and you don't treat it, they tend to get septicemic in two to six days with the typical things that go along with septicemia. And here's one where you can get a secondary pneumonic plague and airborne transmission. So if you end up having somebody with plague that you're admitting, you need to put them in respiratory isolation for the first 48 hours until you're sure that they're not going to develop the pneumonic form, because that is contagious person to person, unlike the anthrax. So here's an example of what the bubo can look like. Another one here. 
And again, think of all the rashes we looked at yesterday on our shift. <laughs> if you weren't suspecting it, you wouldn't think of it. What happens is you get uh, activation of this coagulation enzyme at lower temperatures and clots in the small vessels. So in the distal extremities, like the fingers, the tip of the nose, and so forth, you can actually get this necrosis. So people that survive from the uh, bubonic plague can actually have a lot of morbidity from it. Now again, this is contagious person to person. There's an incubation period, usually two or three days presents with flu-like illness, just like all of them. One thing that's different is hemoptysis. So in addition to TB and everything else we think of with hemoptysis, plague is something we want to think of for the pneumonic form, the inhaled form. They get respiratory distress. Virtually everyone's going to die if you don't treat them. So you really need to figure this out and treat them. 20 to 60 percent um, if treated within 18 to 24 hours of symptoms. So this is something, again, that could be aerosolized, released through the air, and infect large numbers of people. And we have systems in place where we can get treatment out, prophylactic treatment, to large groups of the population to try to prevent this. And the other thing about this plague, this is actually endemic in every state west of the Mississippi now, having said that, that translates to virtually no cases per year. But this disease is out there. It's in squirrels. It's in animals. It's in um, veterinary environments. If you look at the literature of the last 10 years, several of the people who have died from plague in the U.S. have been veterinarians doing various procedures on cats because cats are very susceptible to plague. But not dogs, not, dogs, right? not cute puppies. So, yeah. But if you see a squirrel coming into the department with homoptysis, if you, if you practice in Southern California, I don't think you have to worry about this. But if you practice in rural New Mexico or rural Arizona or rural Utah or even parts of the border between California and Arizona, this disease is out there in the animal population. It's endemic. And the chances you may see a case or two in your lifetime is not that rare. It's not that surprising. And when would you think of this? Did you think of this in somebody who's young, healthy, that has a gram-negative pneumonia? Most of the time, if you think of gram-negative pneumonias, like Klebsiella and all that nonsense, you think about the alcoholic, the debilitated patient. But somebody like you should not be developing gram-negative pneumonias. So if you were to see a young, healthy person come in with a gram-negative pneumonia, and you happen to be working in rural Arizona or rural New Mexico, that would be the time to think about, could this be pneumonia? So this is a, what an x-ray might look like with this low bar consolidation here. Treatment of the bubonic form. First, you want to confirm the diagnosis. You can use fluorescent antibody stains of sputum or tissue. Again, isolate for the first 48 hours. But if there's no draining lesions or pneumonia at the end of that time, you can take them out of isolation. We have very few isolation beds in the hospital, so this is important to know. Blood precautions that bubo fluid is infectious. These buboes, even though they look scary, typically recede in 10 to 14 days. So this is not something you want to IND. You don't want to spread this all over the place. It's going to recede with treatment. So think about this next time before you drain an abscess. Is it a bubo? No? Okay, good. Go ahead. 60% <laughs> mortality without treatment. And the books, believe it or not, in this day and age, still say streptomycin as the treatment. How many of you have ever used streptomycin? Dr. Seip, have you used streptomycin? I was working with Dr. Burns one time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so maybe if you're in India or something, some other country you might, but in, in modern United States, uh, I don't even think we still have this on formulary. Yeah, you'd be hard pressed to find You'd be hard to find. So there's a lot of alternatives, but uh, for, for odd reasons, the books still say streptomycin is the drug of choice, probably because that's what we have the most experience with. Now, moving on to the next one. Yes? What's the prophylaxis? Prophylaxis is um, usually doxycycline, but there's alternatives for allergic people. But when we do the planning through the strategic national stockpile, which is um, something maintained at the federal level so that we can get mass prophylaxis out to a community within the United States if we need to, um, the most commonly used drug would be doxycycline. Right, Chip? For plague? 
plague your plague exercises, doxycycline, uh, prophylaxis. Plague, yeah. <laughs> okay. You know what happened with the anthrax was CDC changed their guidelines post uh, October 2001. Yeah, we talked about that, I think, right before you came in. Sorry. Okay. So next one on the category A list is tularemia, also called not cute puppy fever, but rapid fever. <laughs> rapid fever, and tick is the principal reservoir for this disease. It's uh, aerobic, gram-negative. We do see some cases of this, a few hundred annually. Untreated, about 8% supposedly die. We do know it was used as a biowarfare agent in the past. That's one of the criteria. We have had some outbreaks that we don't think were terrorism, for example, in Martha's Vineyard and around Utah. And there is an inhalational form as well as a cutaneous form. Again, flu-like illness. One thing they describe with tularemia is something called a pulse temperature dissociation. What does that mean? What happens when you get a fever? Your heart rate goes up with the fever, right? Which makes it hard for me to understand the SERS criteria. But anyway, that's a whole nother lecture. <laughs> um, so what happens if you get a fever, but your heart rate doesn't go up as you would expect it? So you have a fever of, say, 40 degrees centigrade, but your heart rate's only 60 or 70, lower than you would expect. That's called a pulse temperature dissociation. And there are certain diseases where you know, assuming they're not on a beta blocker or some other reason for the lower pulse, there are certain diseases where that's commonly seen, and tularemia is one of those that's described with this pulse temperature dissociation. So they'll come in with dry cough, chest pain, or tightness without objective signs of pneumonia. Again, there's also a cutaneous form, a couple different versions of that with different types of lesions, but essentially ulceroglandular or typhoidal type lesions and here's what the x-ray could look like in the cutaneous form. You see some infiltrates, tenting of the diaphragm, which is probably a pleural effusion, some left hilar enlargement. <coughs> the cutaneous form is usually about a three to six day incubation period. Then you get a papule, then an ulcer, and you get regional lymphadenopathy. Very high fever, typically early. And there's some other types of things that you can see. But almost all of them are going to have enlarged lymph nodes. About a quarter of them have a pharyngitis. You put that in your differential of sore throat. And here's some lesions of tularemia. There was a patient that one of my colleagues saw who was a homeless man who came into the emergency department. And he'd been bitten on his hand by a rabbit. And so there was a whole discussion of whether it could be tularemia, which it turned out not to be. But uh, this poor man was actually thinking that rabbit's feet are very lucky. So he cut the foot off the rabbit. And, but unfortunately, the rabbit was still alive and didn't really like that and bit him. <laughs> but he did get a warm meal and a hospitalization. So some people said he was lucky to have this rabbit's foot. <laughs> Leave that to you. <laughs> anyway, this is what the, the lesions <laughs> look like. And you have this kind of heaped ulcer, again, rabbit fever. It looks kind of like a cute puppy, though, doesn't it, Wes? Uh, the bunny is pretty cute. Yeah, OK. <laughs> the pharyngeal form, again, this is another manifestation of tularemia. Treatment, again, the books will list streptomycin. I don't think you'll find that anywhere. So Cipro and other alternatives. Antibiotics, again, reduce mortality, so it's important to diagnose and treat. And moving on now to the virus category, uh, this is an electron microscope picture of smallpox, which we should not be seeing. It's a variola pox virus. It's very stable outside the host. Remember the, the present to the Indians with the infected blankets and all that? And very infective. Average incubation period about 12 days. So there's all kinds of discussions about could a suicidal terrorist purposely infect him or herself and walk out among the population and supposedly each person you contract, then 20 more people contract it from that person and so on and so forth. And some people say they'd be too sick to walk around. So this is the kind of things we used to talk about in Washington. 
Anyway, uh, respiratory transmission, it goes to the lymph nodes, you get a viremia, and then you get this rash. And here we had a discussion yesterday, right, about the, whether this kid might have chicken pox. This is what chicken pox looks like compared to what smallpox looks like. Smallpox, it's all the lesions in the same stage of development. Chicken pox, they are generally in multiple different stages of development. With smallpox, uh, you're going to get fever, rigors, malaise, headache. Severe back pain is described. It uh, infects all these lymph areas. And then typically you get this rash, which is one of the few rashes on palms and soles. So if you're seeing a rash on palm and soles and it's not hand, foot, and mouth disease, then smallpox is one of the things that you will think about. Here's another picture, very, very sick, moribund. There's a malignant variety. Very few people still alive today have ever seen a patient with smallpox. What, is, what does that mean, malignant? Like, isn't it all malignant? <laughs> no, there um, are different forms. I think it's more, you can see that this person, you know, it looks there's, like deeper. Yeah, Go ahead. There's different forms of smallpox. Most of the ones that we would see um, today, if but if in traditionally in the world there used to be two various variations of smallpox one that was more common in Africa which was called variola minor because it did not have the same morbidity and mortality that variola major had variola major um, was seen more in Europe had a mortality of around 30 to 33% variola minor was sort of in a couple of percent mortality so obviously a substantial reduction between the two and then immunocompromised individuals, there was stuff like this, which is a, it's very old major, but with, when you have no immune system that works at all, uh, you have a very uh, malignant course, very short, and you die. Uh, and that's what... Rapid and high mortality, basically. <clears throat> okay. CDC just got cited for uh, leaving the door open to the vault where that U.S. strain is kept. So always <laughs> close the door to the vault where the smallpox is kept. That's a lesson here. Okay. <laughs> Who cited them? Internal security. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so unlike chickenpox, which is going to start in the chest and spread out, this is why we asked the history, where did the rash start? This starts on the legs and moves up to the trunk. More abundant on the extremities and face. And again, all the lesions are supposed to be in the same stage of development. So first you have macules, then you have pap papules, and then you have vesicles. Whereas with chickenpox, you can have macules, pap papules, and vesicles all at the same time. You would not expect that in smallpox. And again, the palms and soles are prominent on this. Now, one of the issues has been that since virtually none of us have seen smallpox, but we see lots of patients come in with rashes, and you know, you get called out to triage rash check. If you get called out to triage rash check and you think, gee, this looks like smallpox, what are you going to do? Well, by, <laughs> by definition, it would be terrorism. You'd have to alert not only public health, but law enforcement, and typically you close your emergency department. And this has happened after September 11th where people had suspected smallpox and didn't know for sure and actually closed their hospitals. So this can have a huge effect, those little rash checks you do out at triage. Don't anybody go out there and diagnose smallpox just because of this lecture. <laughs> so this is to remind you that it goes from the lower extremities upward, smallpox, as opposed to chickenpox, which is going the other way around. So again, one case, by definition, terrorism. We should not have even one case. And very, very contagious. The scabs can actually um, spread it. It can be spread through ventilation systems. There's been epidemiologic studies showing how that works in the past. Okay, so what's the treatment? These patients need to be placed in quarantine. This is one that is contagious person to person. If somebody is sick, um, they need to be isolated, and this could have a huge implication in terms of your healthcare workforce if you're taking people off work for 17 days because they've been exposed. 
We can give prophylaxis. We can give smallpox vaccine. Carl, do you want to comment on the vaccination program for smallpox? Uh, not much to say about it. I mean, in, a, in a known outbreak, it's, it's a life-saving intervention. Otherwise, um, the, the vaccine has a fairly substantial morbidity and some mortality associated with it to the point that if you do any sort of rational strategic analysis, which we actually did a couple of years ago when the Bush administration was pushing everybody to get vaccinated, you can't make it work. Um, you would you'd have to postulate an inordinately high risk uh, of the disease in the population to justify the one in a million death rate from this vaccine. So um, currently, it, it, to prophylactically vaccinate people without a clear and present danger can't be rationalized. Once there is an outbreak or once there is a clear and present danger, then it's clearly life-saving. So it, it just depends on your perspective. But then in the past, when this has been done, no matter how you crunch the numbers, rationally you can't come out with this. And that's why the actual, I forget what it's the initial stand for, the ACIP or that uh, National Organization on Vaccine Practices that sort of is the scientific body that gives recommendations to the CDC recommended against smallpox vaccination, even though they did it anyway. There are science people said, this is nuts, you can't do this. So there was a, a program not too long after 9-11 where the CDC wanted to vaccinate a half a million healthcare workers and pretty much most people declined for the reasons just stated and said, if you find one case, yes, we'll take the vaccine, but this is not completely without risk and unless you find one case, there should be no threat, so we're not doing it. So it didn't really work out even though it was recommended. What about this, this business with the uh, half a billion on the antiviral that Nikki Lurie's for? In terms of the funding? And why did they, you know, the, so it's sort of a threat analysis question. Why were they spending, essentially, it's a billion dollar contract. Well, there's a lot, um, we don't really have time to get into it in detail, but what he's alluding to is there's a lot of analysis in terms of being prepared and how much money we should spend on which types of things and there's been some criticism of the US government for spending large sums of money on things that perhaps are not likely to happen or there may be other approaches to and that's kind of an ongoing thing in Washington all the time. So I just want to talk briefly about monkeypox. Remember it's not on that list. This is not a category A bioterrorism agent, but it is something that you would be much more likely to see than smallpox. So what is this animal? I'll give you a clue. It's not a cute puppy. Oh, you've been to this talk before. No, you knew? This is a giant Gambian rat? That's pretty good. It's a giant Gambian rat. Usually people don't get that. Why do I show a picture of a giant Gambian rat, which apparently some people think are cute exotic pets? I should have said, how many people think it's a giant gamion rat? <laughs> they transmit monkeypox. So these are exotic animals that are brought into the U.S. illegally. They apparently are taken to um, flea markets. Rob Darling was telling me about this. And they trade them around, but they don't keep any records of where they go. So if you try to do an epidemiologic investigation to find out where the monkeypox is going, you can pretty much forget it because they don't love their pets enough to even find out who's taking them home from the flea market. So these giant gamion rats transmit monkeypox, which is a relative of variola, and clinically can look fairly similar to smallpox. So if you get called out to triage for a RAS check and you go, oh, lesions all in the same stage of development, started on the legs, like smallpox, 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 probably more likely it's going to be monkeypox. Now, one thing that supposedly distinguishes it is the cervical and inguinal lymph nodes. I don't know that I'm going to get that close to a patient with possible smallpox to <laughs> check this, but that's what the books say. And um, monkeys in Africa have this. It's transmitted to human by contact with prairie dogs, these giant Gambian rats, also by fomites. Occasionally aerosolized, but not very common, so it's limited in person-to-person -person transmission. And one thing that's interesting is the same vaccine that can protect you from smallpox can prevent you from monkeypox. So sometimes we've done vaccination programs when there's been monkeypox outbreaks. 
This is a picture of a child with monkeypox. Rash looks pretty similar, doesn't it? I mean, usually they're not going to be as sick as somebody with smallpox. But the rash can look very, very similar. Here's some more pictures of it. All in the same stage of development. Vesicular lesions. So if that kid goes into the ED, I mean, you don't know. So you're calling the CDC and <coughs> You might. You might. But if you start taking a history and you go, yes, I was playing with my giant Gambian rat, <laughs> it's going to make you a lot less suspicious. But if you're concerned, you may need to just isolate and activate and get everything checked out. Because if it is smallpox, it's extremely serious, obviously. Okay, um, 2003 is an example of when we had an outbreak with 72 infected. But unlike smallpox, nobody died. And in fact, it was less virulent than we thought it was going to be. So it's pretty much just supportive care. Again, you can give vaccination um, to help prevent it after somebody who has close exposure. Okay, moving on to the viral hemorrhagic fever. So this is a category A agent, and we'll give the example of Ebola. Abrupt onset of fever, muscle aches, headache, again, flu-like symptoms. But this one, you're sort of bleeding everywhere. So you have abdominal pain, chest pain, diarrhea, really high mortality, 90%. And this one is really scary because it was transmitted very easily to hospital workers. So people working in Africa where we had Ebola, here's a microscopic picture of it, were coming down with the disease. And that's obviously not very nice when you see your colleagues collapsing and dying. Picture of the rash, maculopapular, prominent on the trunk, again, bleeding everywhere, associated thrombocytopenia, hypotension, and so forth. And uh, here is a healthcare worker examining this boy's belly, showing the abdominal pain. Here's somebody who's getting decontaminated because it can spread so easily to <coughs> healthcare workers. And this is actually them bearing the gloves because they were finding that animals were picking up these gloves and moving them about and transmitting the disease that way. So Ebola, very, very scary disease. Uh, there's some suggestion that some antivirals might work for some of the hemorrhagic viral uh, fevers, but it's mostly supportive care, strict isolation, and very, very high mortality. Again, if you saw Ebola in a place where it's not supposed to be, you would expect terrorism as the cause. Okay, and then the last one, the number six, the toxins, kind of a separate category. Some people think it's not quite biological and, and not quite viral, so they call it a toxin. Botulism is a major example of that, and this is just highly, highly potent. A single gram dispersed evenly in a way that could be inhaled, again, weaponized, could kill one million people. So unlikely to happen, but if the terrorists got a hold of it and dispersed it in an aerosolized form, a single gram could kill one million people. It's something that we plan for and we're concerned about. And what do they die of, typically? What does botulism do? Respiratory arrest. So it's n they don't need oxygenation, they need ventilation, but huge numbers of people that need ventilation. So maybe we're going to have family members ventilating and trading off or something, or you know, the cheap $50 portable ventilators. There's different ways to approach this, but we would need way more ventilators than what we have. The toxin's very unstable, so it's improbable, but again, could have a huge effect if it were done. So when do you think of botulism? Again, this is something you could see outside of terrorism as well, right? Raw honey in infants, for example, or uh, black tar heroin users who inject the botulinum toxin along with the heroin. So we do see some cases of botulism. You're going to suspect it when you have both gastrointestinal and neurologic symptoms together at the same time. 12 to 36 hour incubation period. So somebody comes from the picnic eating improperly canned foods. They've got blurred vision, diplopia, dry mouth, ptosis, that type of thing. And then you're developing this descending paralysis, which eventually is going to affect the respiratory muscles, causing respiratory arrest, 60% mortality without ventilatory support. And how long do they usually need the ventilatory support? Like months. I mean, it's not just like a couple of days. It's long term until they can recover from this. 
and it's not so easy to get the um, the antitoxin. You usually have to get it from public health, or the one time I had to get it was from the state level at that time. So you want to look for the toxin, provide ventilatory support. You have to suspect this, of course. There is an antitoxin, but it's not benign. You have to watch for serum sickness, and we'll hear next talk about anaphylaxis. You're supposed to avoid um, certain types of antibiotics like aminoglycosides or clinda, which we would otherwise commonly give for MRSA, because uh, it could worsen the paralysis and even precipitate respiratory arrest. So that's one little key point to remember. So summary of the category A agents, we have the bacteria, anthrax, plague, and tularemia, the viruses, smallpox, and Ebola, and the toxins, botulism, which are the ones we have to worry about being passed from person to person, plague, pneumonic plague, smallpox, and Ebola are the most important ones in terms of contagious from person to person. A couple of key concept slides. First of all, you have to suspect it. It has to be in the right setting. You need ready access to current diagnostic and treatment information. It's changing. It may be that the terrorist manufactured something that's resistant to Cipro, for example. So we have to look to the CDC and other groups like World Health Organization to see what the current treatment is. We need to know how to contact public health and law enforcement, even if it's 3 in the morning on a Sunday. 24-7, we need to know how to contact them. Some of the clinical features, the inhalational form of anthrax, remember that brain with the hemorrhagic meningitis, about 50% of them develop hemorrhagic meningitis. Remember the bubonic form of plague can become the pneumonic form, so they would need to be in isolation for the first 48 hours. Smallpox, shouldn't see it, one case is terrorism. The rash is spreading from the legs to the trunk, opposite of chickenpox. We had see it on the palms and soles and all the lesions in the same stage of development. And so 